Lord, so often as we come to you, we come to your house, we come to the scriptures, we, we look to life. And, and what a joy when we find that, that we can have life, true life, not, not just breathing and, and existing, but, but life, communion with you. So often, Lord, that we want to come and, and experience the life and be told of this life and be a witness of this life and learn how to literally walk with the Spirit and be empowered in this life. But, Lord, there are times we come and the messages of your death. And through that death we have life, but, but there was a cost, there was a price that was paid as we come here, Lord, to this chapter of the, the crucifixion, as we look to this truly, what is an eyewitness of your death, we declare, Lord, thank you for paying that price, knowing that in that, your death, we have life. But also the things that you want to show us through this passage, through the eyewitness account, we want to learn, we want to grow. So give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, saints, if you would, please open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We continue our journey through this chapter, through this book, and we find ourselves here this evening in verse 17. So we ended last week on chapter 19, verse 16, then we recognize that Pilate delivers Jesus to the, the Jews, and of course with that, the, the, the Roman soldiers, they take Jesus and they led him away. Verse 17 makes a statement, and he, that is Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. As we look to this passage of the cross, I want to just put a little foundation before we jump into the study because the, the cross holds many different perspectives. Depends on which way you're looking at it, who's looking at it, what does the cross mean. And I think it's important to, one, before we, we jump into the study, Jesus, of course, bearing his cross, goes to the place of the skull, which was Golgotha, where they crucify him. There's a passage in the book of Romans chapter 3. I want to read a couple of verses to you. And what I want to show you is this, that within these per perspectives of the, the cross, that I, I want you to see that when God looks at the cross, he sees something, I think, different than you and I do. Romans 3, verses 24 and verse through 26 make this statement, and I want you to see how, how God views the cross that Jesus just bore and on which he was crucified. When Paul wrote to the church of Rome in verse um, 24 of chapter 3, he says, being justified freely, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness 
because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God sees the cross, and what he sees is this. He sees a term that we in Christendom, some know, some don't know as well, but it's a term called propitiation. A simple definition for propitiation would be the satisfaction of justice. We see it as the satisfaction of God's justice. So what happens is this, that God is a God who is just, God who is a God who is holy, God who is a God who is a God of veracity. In other words, he's truth. And he can't wink at sin. He has to deal with sin. But he wants to be able to have a relationship with us. And so his wrath, his justice, his truth, his holiness is satisfied through the work of the cross. And this is amazing. You have to understand that when God, when he sees the cross, he now sees there's a propitiation, a satisfaction of his justice with us, a satisfaction of his wrath with us. It's now appeased. And, and I think it's so important to look to see how God sees the cross, that he sees the sin being dealt with. He sees the sin being forever taken away, and God is satisfied. It's interesting, Jesus sees the cross a little differently. God looks and he says, yes, sin is satisfied. But Jesus has a different perspective. Jesus recognizes that, that what he's about to do is he is about to make a payment, but the payment is going to be with him being brutally sacrificed. But make no mistake, when Jesus said, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from you. I know there's going to be a brutal sacrifice, but at the same time, there's a payment that needs to be made. And, and I'm just so grateful that Jesus was willing to go through the payment process in order to purchase us. And so it's just this beautiful understanding where when Paul wrote to the church of, of Corinthians in, in chapter 6, verse 20, he says, don't you know, you were bought with a price. And it's important to recognize that truth that over and over in the scriptures, you know, Paul says, recognize you were bought with a price. Peter in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. We begin to see that Jesus here recognizes there is a price that needs to be paid and he is willing to go forth and to literally pay that price. And so just one of those things where as Isaiah comes through this passage as in chapter 53, verse 10, it, it makes a statement where it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. 
It's one of those things where, where Jesus becomes this payment for us. And, and so when we recognize here that, that Jesus is the one who's going through this brutal sacrifice, Jesus is going to be the one to make the purchase price, understand that what we recognize of Jesus as he goes to the cross where um, Philippians tells us uh, as far as, you know, it was as an act of obedience that he goes to the cross, that as an act of obedience, he comes to that place of surrender. And so as he does, it's a unique thing that he recognized, yes, it is a place where I am going to be brutalized. It is a place in which um, I'm going to purchase those. But the same time where Philippians 2.8 says, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point that the cross was a testing of his obedience. And then through that obedience, we see that, that yes, he comes and he makes himself an offering to sin. He does so in obedience. And so it's just an amazing thing where, where the, the works that, that Christ does cleanses us. And so when we look to this, I think it's important to see that we look to the cross in one way. God looks to the cross as another way. Jesus looked to the cross as another way. Um, understand that when we look at the cross, when I see the cross, most importantly for me, I see 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which simply makes this declaration. Let me read it to you. He makes this statement. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, that he might be just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus Christ is my substitution in death. Jesus Christ is my path to life. And it's so important that, that he is the one who makes me now right with God. And, and this is how I see the cross. I recognize that there on the cross is my substitute. That my sin has to be dealt with without the shedding of blood. There can be no remission of sin, but I see him in my stead. I see him bearing the, the, the price that should be me. And when it comes to that, it's just a beautiful thing. God sees the cross so wonderfully where he's satisfied. Jesus sees the cross. Yes, it's going to be brutal, but it's a payment, and I'm willing to pay this so that I can bring those that I love and the Father loves into a right relationship. I'm going to be obedient as I go to this cross, and we see his substitution. On the other end, we look to how God sees it, and I think it's important to kind of see how Satan sees the cross as well. There's a passage, and I think you should be aware of it, found in Genesis 3.15, where it talks about the first prophecy. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, where it's that first prophecy of the cross. And it makes a statement where when God is putting a, a, the curse onto the serpent, he says this, speaking of the, um, the one, the seed who will come through the woman, we know that to be Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we see that, he makes that statement. He says, you shall bruise his head. No, you shall bruise his heel. He will bruise your head. He'll crush your head. So there's this, there's this understanding that you're going to wound him. You're going to do this. And I think initially what, what, what Satan sees is a victory. But then what happens is this. Three days later, he sees a defeat. He can't get over it. 
and so so beautifully, so perfectly, where where God begins to work out the truth of what this cross is. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I want to read to you just this, this one passage. It says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken in flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That he is going to destroy the devil, he's going to simply conquer him, and there's nothing that the enemy can do. In Colossians 2, Verse 15, he says, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made it a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, speaking on there on the cross. And so we see here that where where Satan initially saw this cross as a victory, yes, I'm going to bring this, this bruising to him. I'm going to bruise his heel, but at the very end, that that heel that he bruised would crush his head, that he would conquer Satan. One last thing I want to show you because you can see how God sees it, how Jesus sees it, how we see it, how Satan sees it. But there's one other group that is, is here at this crucifixion, and I, I think it's important for us to, to recognize this, how non-believers see the cross. And in that, there's a passage I just want to share it with you in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let me just read it to you. It says this, But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. I want you to see that the non-believers, what they see in Christ and the cross is this. It's a denial. It's a denial. I love the fact that you denied the Holy One. You deny who is the cross, foolishness to those who are perishing. And I think it's so important that they see Jesus Christ on the cross and there's a denial. And to be honest with it, there's still a denial to this day. There's still a denial that it's Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is life to us. His death on the cross is, was a needed, necessary thing for our sins to be paid. And so as we look to this, I want you to recognize that there was a denial, there was a rejection, and then there was killing him. And that's what we see. You denied the Holy One, you killed the Prince of Life. There was this rejection. You didn't want him. You asked for a murderer, and you rejected him, the the Prince of Life. And so I think it's so important to see how these different groups look to the cross. And there's not just one perspective. There's a perspective God has, a perspective Christ has, a perspective that we have as we are crucified with him, a perspective of the enemy, and, of course, the perspective of the non-believers. When it comes to the cross, it's one of these interesting things because it was the Jewish leaders that initiated Jesus' death on the cross. It was Pilate who brought the judicial... um, He was the one who was judicially responsible for Jesus Christ going to the cross. He's the one who sent him to it. And so as as we look to this, the, the cross, although it was death of Jesus Christ, it opens the door to the new covenant. It's the thing that conquers sin and death and shame. And we look to this cross, and so when we see in verse 17, and he, Jesus, bearing his cross, it's a huge statement. 
It's a huge radical thing to try to determine what does this cross mean to you? What does his death mean to you? And of course, he goes out to a place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Now, it's interesting that here we see that he goes out of the city. And it's important to recognize that when it declares he goes out of the city, that there's a reason for that understanding. There's a passage. I want to share two passages with you. The first is found in Leviticus chapter 16. And I want to read to you only one verse there. I want to read to you verse 27. In Leviticus 16 to verse 27, it makes this declaration. For the bull of the sin offering... And the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make an atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn it in the fire, their skins and their flesh and their offal. When the high priest would make atonement for the people, all the sacrifices of the sheep, the goats and the bulls, and everything else that they would do would be there upon the altar. Uniquely, this bull for the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, its blood was used, but then it would be carried outside the camp. That only the blood was used to consecrate. Everything else was taken outside and it would be burned. And so there's another passage for you to be aware of. That was simply the Old Testament making a statement that for the bull and the goat that caused atonement for the high priest, that caused atonement for the, the people of Israel, it had to be removed from the camp, taken outside the camp. Uniquely, there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Let me simply read it to you. It makes this declaration, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's amazing that, that this death is literally not in Jerusalem, but taken outside the gate. And, and so we recognize that same truth that here Jesus is that atonement, the same atonement as that ox would be there in Leviticus, only so much more because the bloods and goats, they could cover sin but never take away the sin. And so as we see here, I want you to recognize that Jesus is now out of the city. He goes to a place of the skull called Golgotha. Luke, interestingly, doesn't call it Golgotha. In, in Luke 23, 33, he calls it Calvary. He calls it to a place called Calvary. He uses the Gentile name. And I find it interesting that here we see the Hebrew name. Luke uses a Gentile name. And I love the fact that his death was for what? Both Jew and Gentile alike. And so, you know, if you've ever wondered why we call ourselves Calvary Chapel, Calvary is the, the hill on which Jesus would die. That is the hill on which our atonement would be purchased. And so as we look to this, we, we begin to see here that this is that, that heart of which God would do. And so he's taken outside the camp. He's taken to a place called Golgotha, which is a place of a skull. It's interesting that there is a determination that at one point that that hill that Jesus was crucified, that on that hill, when you take a look at the bottom part of the hill facing it, it would look like a skull. 
The, the skull through the years has been eroded. You can kind of still see the skull. It's not as prominent as it used to be, but it's still there. You can still see these is where the eyes would be. This is where the nose was. Here's where the mouth is. It's literally the hill of the skull. It was the hill of death. And that's where Jesus went. And it says there in verse 18 where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now we have a tendency every so often to sing the song, Jesus be the center. I don't think this is what it meant. But I find it interesting that, that you, you see these two and Jesus here is literally on one side and on the other side. James and John would have their mother come and say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can my two sons be one on the right and one on the left when you come into your kingdom? At this point, remember what the thief said? Oh, oh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, Don't worry, you'll be with me today in paradise. But here as he's coming into his kingdom, the one on the right, the one on the left, when Jesus said, hey, you don't know what you ask. Oh, oh yeah, we do. No, no, you don't. <laughs> There's going to be a time you're going to pay the price. This is not that time. But you do see that there is one on one side and one on the other, that you begin to see this, this radical thing that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. Two passages to be aware of. If you're a note taker, jot them down. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9 and verse 12 makes a statement. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit made in in his mouth. So, so we, we see here that his grave, his death was there with the wicked. Now, in verse 14, oh, strike that. In verse 12, he makes a statement Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercessor, intercession for the transgressors. And so at this point, even when the one said, listen, remember me, he said, absolutely, you'll be with me in my kingdom. So I think it's important to, to see here that when the gospel writers talk about the crucifixion, that there are a lot of details about the crucifixion that the gospel writers don't deal with the punishment. They don't deal with the pain. They don't deal with that. They simply said... He was crucified. And I find that amazing because the focal point is Jesus on the cross, not what the cross is doing to Jesus, but what Jesus is doing for our sin. It's important to recognize that. You can go into commentaries, and there will be chapters and chapters and chapters of just what the cross is, what the cross does, the brutality of the cross, how Jesus is you know, suffocating and, and all this pain that he's going through as they, they put the nails through these um, nerve bundles there in his wrists and on his feet and the pain that is excruciating. And yet, I love how the gospel writers just said, they crucified him. He died. But, but you have to understand that this is Jesus' victory over sin and death. And he uses the cross as an instrument. And so you don't spend all the time on what the instrument does it's like a carpenter. What does he do? He just grabs a hammer. We don't spend chapters and chapters and chapters explaining the hammer, how it's made and what it does. You just grab a hammer. You just you use the tool. Now, what we see is this. It moves from the point of, of this area of the, the crucifixion 
now to a discussion that, that Pilate has with the Jews. And within this, there's a, a huge issue of the statement that Pilate writes. In verses 19 through 22, it makes a statement of John 19. Now, Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, verse 22, what I have written, I have written. I find it interesting that they, the, the, the here we see, and I want you to note that there's something unique that comes here in verse 21. It says, therefore, the chief priest of the Jews. Uniquely, everywhere else in the gospel, everywhere until this point calls them the chief priests. They never refer to him as the chief priest of the Jews. This is the only time in all the scriptures that they basically have forsaken their Savior. And now they are the chief priests of the Jews. They're not chief priests in God's kingdom anymore. They're not chief priests there anymore. They're simply the chief priests of the Jews. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit just, just degrades their authority here in this point and accents it by doing what? Well, you see from this point on, they really have no authority. They try to tell Pilate, I don't want you to, to make it a truth. I want you to make it a claim. He goes, no, what I've written, I've written. This is truth. And so he, he is not belittled, he is not bullied when they come to him later and say, listen, this man said that, that he, would, he would rise after three days and we think his disciples are going to go, stop him, stop him. you got to put some guards there and, and stop him from rising. And he goes, listen, you go, you have your own guards, make it as sure as you know how. And he's like, you have no authority anymore. When they try to stop Peter and John from preaching, what do they do? So listen, rather to obey God rather than you, you be the judge. They can put them in prison, they still get out. They, they lose their authority from this point. It was the last official act in the sense that the Holy Spirit shows them with authority. And he does so by actually making a statement by saying the chief priest of the Jews. But this is what begins to happen. Pilate wrote a title, verse 19. And he put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a cross, and a lot of times there will be certain crosses with a, a statement, a little plaque on the top, and that, that plaque says I-N-R-I. Maybe you've seen that. And if you ever wondered what that is, that is Latin for Jesus, I-E-S-U-S, Jesus, Nazareth, Rex, which is king, Judeorum, which is the Jews. And so it's a Latin term. So it just stands for Jesus Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so the, the, the I-N-R-A is just, just Jesus Nazareth Rex Yudurum. And, and so it, within that Latin, it comes out so beautifully. And, and you see that often on signs, I-N-R-I. And it simply means this is it, Jesus Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
It declares who he was. Jesus of Nazareth declares what he was, king of the Jews. It's not a claim, it's a truth. And at this point, I want you to understand that Pilate here, there's this twofold understanding of what's happening now with Jesus Christ with the political leaders and with the religious leaders. Remember what happened back in chapter 11? Remember verse 49 through verse 52, where there was Caiaphas. And as Caiaphas was there, he made a statement. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider it expedient for one man that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not only, not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So he wouldn't just be the savior of Israel, he would be the savior of the world. And it's interesting that the religious leader, the high priest, makes a prophetic statement that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And here, the, the, the governor, the political authority, now makes this statement that he is the king. And he has a chance to lessen it. Please, don't say that he was the king. Say that he said he was the king. And Pilate says, I will not lessen this statement. I've made this proclamation, and this statement is forever. This is the king. So much so that remember the one thief on the cross, he makes a statement, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not, not the kingdom, your kingdom. He recognizes he's king. Jesus, listen, I am king, absolutely, but I'm not king of this world. My kingdom is not the world. If my kingdom was, my people would fight, but, but it's not. And he recognizes that he was king. For this cause he was born, to this cause he would die. He's the king. And I love the fact that as Pontius Pilate makes that statement, he literally, literally declares, this is the king. And when the Jew says, listen, don't, don't say that he was the king, but he said, make it this this thing where it's it's not truth we don't want it to be truth we simply want it to be a claim <laughs> it's not a claim it's a truth Pilate says I, i've declared it and it will stand as we see this beautiful statement of who it is now jesus and the many perspectives of those that are on the cross as he's there between these two thieves he's now the king Again, trying to humiliate him, trying to belittle him, trying to lessen him by putting him in the middle of two thieves. You can't hinder or, or lessen who Jesus Christ is because it is written right there. He is the king. He's standing there, and he's there in the middle of his people. Now, while he's there, there's something that's absolutely amazing that takes place in here, verses 23 through 24, we begin to see that part of the eyewitness of what's happening here at the cross is going to be these soldiers trying to divide up the clothing of Jesus, his last belongings, and then very uniquely 
finding one piece, a tunic that they don't want to rip. And in some senses, these soldiers are just going about doing what they do. But on this other hand, it becomes an absolute amazing and prophetic event. Understand that when it comes to the crucifixion, comes to Jesus Christ on the cross, that all of the gospel writers speak of different things. Like, like John, in just a moment, is going to speak to, as far as, you know, his mother. You know, woman, behold your son. I'm giving you to John. John, son, you know, behold your mother. So he's the only one that writes that. And there's other statements that are only, you know, in certain one of the gospels. But in all four of the gospels, in all four, they make this declaration of the soldiers casting lots. And, and there's a reason why all four make this proclamation. And so within this proclamation, just keep in mind, if you want the gospel passages declared, it's Matthew 27, 35, Mark 15, 34, and Luke 19, 24. Now keep in mind, these are just basic, unsuspecting Roman soldiers I don't think they've read through Psalm 22. I don't think they did that. I don't think they understood exactly what was going on. But what was happening was this. They wanted his clothes, but for whatever reason, they didn't want to destroy this outer garment. Look at verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. The tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. And he said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says. Now, understand, they didn't say that the scripture might be fulfilled. John is saying that the scripture might be fulfilled. Let's, let's cast lots. Who is going to belong to? But he says, John says, the scripture might be fulfilled. which says, they divided my garments in among among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now he's literally declaring from Psalm 22, verse 18. That's where that passage comes from. Now, what I want to do is this as we look to this, I want to share with you just a couple of passages to be aware of. At the end of the book of Exodus, God uses two places in Exodus where he talks about the garment of the high priest. And within the garments of the high priest, he talks about an ephod, he talks about a robe, he talks about these things. But the two passages I want you to make note of is this. In Exodus 28 is the first time it's mentioned. And I'm going to read from verses 31 through 32. At the very end of Exodus, in chapter 39, He's going to say basically the, the same thing as he reiterates at the very end of what's happening. He's, he's going to declare in, in Exodus 39 verses 22 and verse 23. But let me read to you first and foremost from Exodus 28 verse 31 through 32. Of the high priest and of all of his garments and all of the things he does... He makes this statement, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. He makes a statement that the, the, the robe of the high priest, this is going to be white. It is going to be one of these um, linen clothes that are going to be on the priest. But, but for the high priest, it's going to be blue, the color of heaven. And I want you to make this blue. 
And it says this, verse 32, there shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it, and it shall have a woven binding all around its opening like the opening of a coat of mail so that it does not tear. Literally, the high priest is supposed to have a garment that does not tear. It's important. Keep in mind, it's very important. In Exodus chapter 39, when Moses gets all of the material and he begins to make the garment for the priest, it makes this statement in verse 22 of Exodus 39, he made the robe. Not not just make it, but now he's made the robe of the ephod, ephod of woven work, olive blue, and there was an opening in the middle of that robe, like the opening of a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening so that it would not tear. Now we understand that here within this this robe, it's all of one piece, just like Jesus's. And it makes a statement so that it would not tear. Why is that important? In Leviticus chapter 21, one verse I want to read to you, I want to read to you verse 10. And it's an important thing to follow through this because God makes a robe for the high priest that does not tear. Not only that, but in Leviticus 21 verse 10, he was the high priest among his brethren on whose head is the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head. And then it makes the statement, nor tear his clothes. So understand that what we're seeing here at the cross is something that's so profound. Jesus Christ has a seamless robe. He has the robe, if you will, of the high priest. And this robe of the high priest cannot be torn. The reason that that's so amazing and and so profound is because there in Hebrews chapter 4, let me read to you verse 14. It makes this beautiful, beautiful confession, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast the confession. He's a great high priest. Here he has this robe that is of one that is, according to the scripture, not to be torn. And so when we see what's happening within this passage, over and over we're recognizing here is Jesus, here is his robe. And and so within that passage of Psalm 22, they said, yeah, they divided my garments, but for for my clothing, they cast lots. My, My robe, that robe could not be torn. Now here's the crux. There is a passage in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65. Matthew 26, verse 65. When all of a sudden Jesus has made a statement where he says, listen, as they bring these false witnesses before him, he says, hey, don't worry. He says, pretty soon I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father and you're going to see me coming in the clouds. Authoritative. At that point, verse 65 of Matthew 26 makes that statement, then the high priest tore his clothes, literally went against the commands of God. And so what we're seeing here is that the Caiaphas relinquishes his role as the high priest. 
tears his clothes. He rents the authority. He literally, in this act of trying to show his grieving and, and his, his, uh, um, his anger and his frustration, he rips his clothes. But in doing so, he basically is showing that he is relinquishing his right as the high priest. Jesus Christ, who is a great high priest, his garment is there under someone else's control, not his. And guess what? It's not torn. It is not torn. The amazing thing that we see is although Jesus' garment is not torn, that there is a work that he does do. I love this passage, and so if you're aware of, of just, just how it is and how it works, there's a, a, a passage where in Matthew chapter 27, and let me just read to you verse 51 it, it, it makes this declaration, beautiful passage, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. See, Jesus, he has the authority of the high priest, and his death then rents something else. The high priest ripped his robe. No one rips Jesus' robe. So I want you to recognize as, as John begins to, like all the other gospel writers, begin to talk about this one event. Keep in mind, it's not just a minor thing. It's not just, oh, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. It goes far beyond that. Because these Roman soldiers had no idea that they were fulfilling Scripture. It wasn't like, hey, let's open up the Psalms and see if we can just go along. They had no idea. Absolutely oblivious to what David had written over a thousand years previously. They just go about their thing saying, hey, okay, let's divide the clothes. But what about this one? Should we all get some? No, 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 no. Let's divide by casting lots. Whoever wins is the one who gets it. And so they, in just their natural state, are fulfilling scripture that is so profound that is showing that not only is Jesus king, but he's the high priest. And he's about to offer a sacrifice once and for all that will take care of everything. Why? Because he's outside the gates. He's outside. It's the same as the sacrifices that that bull on the Day of Atonement. He's making atonement for the people. And as high priest, he doesn't need to make atonement for himself, so he only makes atonement for the people. And it's just this incredible thing to recognize what is happening here in the statement where they do not rip his garment. And now we see that it moves from the... the from Jesus and the thieves to Pilate and the religious leaders, the chief priests of the Jews, going to the soldiers, the ones that were there, the four, and now we see the five. The five witnesses that were there, those who were at the cross. And I love the fact that John mentions there were five, the number of grace. And we see here it simply makes this statement, Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. These five who were there at the cross, it's an amazing thing to recognize what is happening here. It opens up very simply. They're stood by the cross. It wasn't away from the cross. They were there by the cross. Jesus, his mother, was there. And also his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we, we recognize that within the cross, there's these Marys that are there. And, and, and so along with them, verse 26 says, he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. And so we recognize these four women and John are there at the cross. And as they are there at the cross, as, as just Mary is, is understanding finally what it is that was declared to her years ago at the very birth of Jesus Christ. There was a point where they bring Jesus to the temple and a man by the name of Simeon comes and he makes this amazing prophecy. He begins to weep because he says, wow, you know, you're, you're, my eyes have seen your salvation. But the end of his prom, prophecy, he, he says to Mary and he declares this. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Luke 2.35. A sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. It's like, listen, Mary, you are going to have pain that no one is gonna, should ever have to happen. You are going to have the pain of seeing your son crucified, seeing your son dying upon a cross, seeing your son mocked. And so as, as he's there, Mary and the other are there. John is there. It simply states that there are five there. And when he then saw his mother, he sees his mother. And he sees the disciple whom he loves. Of course, John always refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. He says to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit did say, he said to the woman, woman, he said to his mother. And the term woman is not a derogatory term. Now, you might hear in our culture, someone says, woman? That's not how it is. It would be like someone in the older um, English saying, sir or madam. It's, it's that type of thing. Madam. So it's not derogatory, but it's not an honor. So keep in mind that there are those who think that here, Mary is going to become the mother of all Christians. No, no, she's going to become the mother of John, one, just one. And it's important to recognize that, that here as she's there, Jesus sees her and he just has this heart for her. And I love the fact that here, he goes to Mary and, and he says, listen, woman, behold your son. He's not going to leave her without someone to take care of her. I find it interesting that according to the Jewish custom, that the one who takes care of the mother when she becomes a widow is what? It's the oldest son. Jesus is the oldest son. And so what does he do to take care of her? He brings her not to one of the other brothers. Now, the other brothers will actually come to know him. They'll be in the upper room. They're, they're part of the work of the church. 
But what happens is this, that Jesus makes a declaration here and he shows a definition of family that is greater than blood, spiritual family. There was a time he says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who do the work. Those who do the work, they are my mother. They are my brothers. And so there's a recognition of the spiritual family versus the physical family. And so he goes to Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And he says then to the disciple, behold your mother. And I want you to recognize how obedient they are from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. There was no delaying this commandment. There was no questioning this commandment. There was no, well, wait, there's other guys that can do this. You have other brothers, Jesus. There wasn't that. There was a command of Jesus, and, and he sets her in the home of the disciple of love, the apostle of love, John. Little children love one another. This is the home he puts his mother into. He puts her into a home that she is simply loved. And I, I love the heart of that. I love what he does. And so we see that those five on the cross are there to or where Jesus is speaking to. For the most part, he speaks to his father. He speaks to the thief. And he speaks to, you know, to John. And he speaks to Mary. These are amazing to see the words of Christ. And as he does so, I love the fact that they're instantly listened to, they're instantly obeyed. And after we see the five, initially we see Jesus by himself. You have the, the two thieves are added to him. You have the, the religious leaders now added to that with Pilate. Then you have the five. And now Jesus is here. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all these things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. They put hyssop and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It's unique that here, Jesus is thirsting. He's thirsting. And the way that the scriptures read is right after he says, I thirst, and they give him the sour wine, then in Luke 23, 44, where there's these three hours of, of just darkness. And, and so we, we see that right after this, the, the, it becomes dark. So this is early on in the crucifixion. As we look to this, it's one of those things that, that Jesus here is declaring, I thirst. It's important to recognize that there is within Psalm 22, verse 15. Let me simply read it to you because this is the Psalm on the cross. And over and over you're going to see where at the beginning Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The same as the beginning of Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But in verse 15, he said, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. He thirsts. And so he asks for a drink. Now at this point, something unique happens. That they give to him, and what, what John declares is there was a vessel full of sour wine that was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on hyssop, and they put it to his mouth. 
Now, it's important to note that this is not the same wine that was found when, when Mark and when Luke talked about the, the wine mixed with myrrh. In Mark 15, verse 23, it does make this statement. Just be aware of it. They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. But here is a wine, and it, it, it's, it's basically, it's a vinegar wine, and so they water that down, and they have another jug. It's a very cheap wine. And for the most part, Jesus is about to make a statement. The end of, of where he is, the beginning of his spiritual, where he's about to deal with the sin, the darkness comes, the wrath of God comes, he simply says, I thirst. Now, there are some discussions when it comes to this point saying, I thirst. Now, one thing I do want to share with you is there are those individuals that will make a statement that when Jesus here is on the cross, as he's dying on the cross, we understand that the Father turns his back on him. Darkness, the wrath of God is poured out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we do recognize that the Father leaves him. There are those who also make the declaration that the Spirit of God also leaves him at this point. The reason being, remember when Jesus was talking about there in John chapter 7, where he talked about, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And, and then he said, you know, he who believes in me in the Scripture, that all of his heart is going to flow of torrents of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit that he would give. So they put in this, this mixture of the Holy Spirit and the thirsting, and they're saying that spiritually, when he says, I thirst, that he's actually making this statement that, that spiritually, the Holy Spirit has left me. I, I, need, I need that thirst. The Father's left me. The Holy Spirit has left me. And so that's the declaration that they make. There's a hole in their argument and the whole in the argument, I would say, is this, that in the, the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 14, it declares this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. See, they say the Spirit came upon Jesus Christ at his baptism, left at this moment of the crucifixion. The work was done. I'm done. And I don't know that that's the case because when it talks here, it says it's the eternal spirit who Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. It doesn't say the spirit left him. So the inference is there. I understand where they're coming from. I understand what they're wanting to, to make that statement. But at the same time, there's this understanding where is it just a physical thirst? Is he talking about something? I think one of the things that he's doing is this. He's trying to refer back to Psalm 22 as often as he can. And every statement that he makes in some sense has come back to Psalm 22. So you recognize this is the Psalm of the Cross. There's another passage to be aware of found in Psalm 69. I want to read to you verses 19 through 21. Within this psalm, Psalm 69, it's a psalm of David, and it makes a statement beginning in verse 19. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. 
My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. In other words, there really was no one who cared for me. And at this point, there was no one looking out for Jesus. He actually had to make that statement himself, I thirst. Now we do see that there was a vessel of the sour wine. It wasn't the wine with myrrh. It was just this wine that was mixed with vinegar. And so the sour wine was sitting there. They filled that sponge with sour wine. They put on a hyssop and they put it to his mouth. So at that point, he gets to allow his mouth to be wet for just a moment. And I think it's important that, that when he receives that, that wine, when he receives it, he makes this beautiful statement. And sometimes where you want to make a clear statement, some things that, that if you're here, you actually see me before the message almost every single time. As you guys are finished up worshiping, I'm taking a sip of water. I'm always, always taking a sip of water. Why? I want to speak as clearly as I can. I don't want anything getting in the way. Jesus here, he waters his mouth. He takes the dryness away. And it says in verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He didn't want it mumbled. He didn't want anything else. I want a clear spoken word. It is finished. And then it says, in bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Uniquely, he declares that work is done. I love the fact he didn't say it started, I did my part, you do yours. You know, it's, it's mostly done. He's just simply, it's done, it's completely done. But that's not where the Spirit ends this. The Spirit makes a statement that after he had said it was finished, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Why is that important? You guys know that one of the things that I do is I, I love the fact that there's a, a strong concordance that helps you kind of get through the, um, the similar words. But there's another book that I use very exclusively when I do my word studies, and it's called an Englishman's concordance. Now, what the Englishman's concordance will do is it will take the word here, and no matter how they translate the word in other passages, I know it's this word. And I'll see how other words are translated. And, and going through this, it was interesting because we see here that he makes that one statement. Finished. Finished. You know what? One word can be enough of an answer. One word can be absolutely amazing. And sometimes all it takes is one word. When a guy asks a woman, would you marry me? Is he looking for a long, no, he wants to hear one word. Yes, just one word. That's all I want to hear. Like, just, it's finished. If you heard a word loved, do you understand? You heard a word forgiven. These words are just so important. All you need is one word, and here he says finished. But I want you to recognize that when he bows down his head, that the term in the Greek is kleno, uh, it, it could also be kleine, 
which is, which is in the, um, not, not just the root, but the actual word, kline. It means to bow, to, to lay your head down. Why is that important? There's two passages in the, the, the New Testament. The first is found in Matthew 8, verse 20. Same statement is actually found in Luke 9, 58. So both of those places, Matthew 9, 20, Luke 9, 58, make a statement. Both of them use this term, the, 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 the kleine. And it makes a statement. I'm going to read from Luke 9, 58, and actually declares this. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to cline his head. I can't bow my head. There's nowhere here on earth to bow my head. Until where? Until the cross. There was never a rest that he could take, never a rest that he was willing to do, never a bowing of the head. I have nowhere. You understand how powerful that statement is? And, and, and I, 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 you, know, you wouldn't find it in the Strong's because one uses bow, one uses lay. But in the Englishman's Concordance, it's the same word. You recognize this is that same word. And it shows you all the passages where this word is used. And you recognize that Jesus, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. And he does not lay his head until the cross. And after he says it's finished, he can do what? Now I can bow my head. And now I can give up my spirit. Now the work is done. And it's the only time that he felt comfortable of resting. And I love the fact that this is our Lord and this is how he thought of our salvation. There was never, ever a rest until he purchased the price, until we became saved. And this is a beautiful thing as far as this eyewitness of the crucifixion. I just love how John just plays it from step to step to step. Finally, when he says it's done, finally, it's, you see all the people around him. You see all the things that are going on. And it ends with Jesus Christ and only him, only him before the Father. And he goes, it's done. That it's done. It's a victory. And there, there, was, there was a shout to what he said, take to less die. This is what he's declaring, finished. And so as we look to that, it's this beautiful thing. And then finally he rests, he bowed down his head, he gives up his spirit. The work is done. Father, we are so grateful for what you allowed Jesus to do. For the work on the cross. For the victory. Father, you've shown us incredible truths that this Jesus, this Jesus, he was truly king of kings. He's our king. He is our high priest. And then we see that he is our God and Savior. That he purchased us. The work is done. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. So we're so thankful, Lord, that, that we, we have life, but it's only because you chose death. You chose the path, the brutal, brutal path of being sacrificed so that your blood would be spilled, so that, that we would have remission of sin. You would satisfy the, the justice of the Father. 
You would confuse those that do not know you. You would anger religious leaders. But all you loved, all you loved, you didn't always love back, but, but you loved them. And so we're so grateful for this work that you've done, the work that you showed us through this passage tonight. May we be those who find ourselves in awe of who you are, that we would come to you as our great high priest. We would come to you as our king of kings. We would come to you as our Lord and Savior. And we would give you all the honor due to all of those titles. So we do. We honor you. We worship you. We bless you. Receive the honor. Receive our worship, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen.